it's time for another episode of The Break. I'm Father Roderick, and I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be elsewhere. And yet, here I am, sitting in front of my microphone, recording this week's show. I'll explain in a minute what's going on. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So yeah, I'm not supposed to be here. Actually, I am supposed to be sitting on a couch completely exhausted after a second day of walking 40 kilometers, um, uh, probably trying to heal the blisters or treat the blisters on my feet and dreading the two subsequent days, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, where I would also have to walk uh, 40 kilometers each day. However... I'm not doing that this year. And the reason is that uh, I have a foot injury. I did uh, register for this big four-day walking event. Many of my friends are walking. I miss them dearly. But uh, last weekend, I decided that it wouldn't be wise to participate because every time I, I walked more than, let's say, 10 kilometers, my feet would start to hurt so much that I just couldn't walk anymore. And I didn't want to jeopardize my health and maybe risk a more severe injury by just pushing myself or maybe what I sometimes hear from other people they will just uh, take painkillers to uh, to to be able to finish uh, that big walk um, I would have loved to participate but I always have to remind myself it, it, I'm doing this kind of stuff to get healthy, not to get injured. And so that is why I am at home right now. Normally I would stay in the city where the walking event is organized. I usually stay with uh, uh, a Jesuit priest uh, that, I, that I've gotten to know over the years with a few other people that also uh, participate in that walk of the world. Um, it's usually a, a really great time because most of the day for, for, for like eight or 10 hours you're walking. And then when we all get back home, we organize a barbecue. We cook together. It's a we we talk about a lot of things. It's a it's always a, a very fun week. But um, now I'm sitting here at home. I've got an extra week. I didn't plan anything, so my calendar is pretty empty, which means I have a lot of extra time to be creative and to also just rest a little bit. And um, I'm, I've been reading a lot. I'm finally catching up on my Goodreads. Uh, reading list. I've been playing more video games than normal. And when I'm done recording this show, it is time for movie night. So I'm recording this uh, on, on a Wednesday evening. And in my calendar, I've marked that Wednesday evening is my movie night. Uh, I, I usually watch a television series and some anime, but a lot of that activity is still linked to my videos and my podcasts. Um, but I, I rarely take the time to, um, to watch an entire movie. And so I decided at least once a, mo a week I will watch a movie. And Wednesday is just a perfect day. It's like halfway through the week, so it's something to look forward to. And, uh, and it can be either a movie on one of the streaming platforms. I'll talk a little bit more about the, 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 the whole crisis in, on when it comes to streaming platforms later on in this show. Uh, or I may actually go to the to the movies to the to the cinema i haven't uh, seen the indiana jones movie yet this is also because despite the fact that it's summer holiday for most people for me this is a time where i have so much other stuff that i want to do and um i 
I, I, I'm not in a hurry to see Indiana Jones. I think for many people, uh, it's, it's kind of similar, especially if you live in one of those countries in the world where it's super hot right now. I don't know about you, but maybe just for the air conditioning, people would go to the movies. But otherwise, I think, you know, with this kind of weather, people, you don't sleep enough and you're tired. And I, I don't think this is a good time to launch movies. Speaking of movies, maybe it's time to talk about them. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. Now, Indiana Jones is not the, the only big big box office movie currently in theaters. Uh, this week also saw the the joint premiere of two movies that couldn't be more different from one another. It's the Barbie movie on the one hand, and it's the Oppenheimer movie on the other hand. Barbie is uh, a quirky story. I haven't seen it yet, but um, some of my patrons have seen it. They say it's, it's a really fun story about Barbie who uh, starts to realize the truth about her life and then you know it's it's she uh, she she uh, turns her life around it's it's fun it's uh it's really very much inspired by the world of the kenner toys um and then on the other hand you've got oppenheimer which is of course about the guy who developed the first atomic bomb and the you know the, the extremely dark consequences of that for mankind not just you know in 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 the uh, in light of the the events around world war ii but of course it it uh, the legacy is is still this nuclear arms race that has threatened i think our world for you know for for for, for ever since and and who knows uh what the consequences might be in the future so uh and then there's also the new mission impossible movie uh, very much uh, in 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 uh, in the vein of of what what I loved about James Bond and similar movies. I think Vin Diesel at one point didn't he have that XXX series where all these movies are a bit the same. There's the hero, very classic movie hero, and then it's filled with chases and spy activities and and heists and whatnot. Um, and Mission Impossible, uh, based on a, an original television series, I think from the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. I've never seen it. Uh, but I did love the first few Mission Impossible movies that came out. I remember seeing the first one. Maybe I was in Rome at the time. I, I, it's such an iconic movie with Tom Cruise, you know, hanging from that from the ceiling, trying to break into that computer. It's that that movie set. Uh, such a standard for this kind of uh, for for these kind of stories, and then and then they just kept going and going and going. The I, what I remember from the first movie was that I totally didn't understand what was going on. James Bond can be a bit all over the place sometimes story wise, but this, especially these first two three movies, they had like everyone was wearing these masks. And so you could never tell if it's a little bit what what uh, Marvel is doing right now with Secret Invasion, where you don't know who's a scroll or not. Anyone can be someone else, and it's super confusing. And in in, in Mission Impossible, they just totally went overboard with all the masks. And uh, uh, so I, I left that movie 
theater completely confused and uh, and I don't think even now that I <laughs> totally understand what what went on but it didn't really matter because there was a lot of action the stunt work was amazing later on the special effects got better and and of course uh, Tom Cruise is known for doing a lot of the stunts that you see for real. And so if you see uh, him flying, um, I don't know, a, 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 a fighter jet, it, it's not CGI. He's really flying that plane. Uh, when he's jumping off a cliff on a motorbike, it's not a stuntman. They don't do face replacements. actually uh, Tom Cruise himself who performs the stunt. And I think... They use that element in for promotional purposes, of course, because now everybody knows in advance that, you know, we're not being tricked. That's kind of the problem, I think, with a lot of action movies. You never really get engaged because you feel like, well, you know what? It's safe. They, they, they have stunned people for this. Or it's CGI. It's all fake, you know. But you know in advance that, no, this is the real thing that we're seeing. And I, I think that if they wouldn't publicize this fact that, that Tom Cruise does a lot of his stunts himself... I don't think the movie would have the same impact. It would still be probably a very entertaining uh, movie, but it wouldn't have that visceral reality feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just saw. And that is really Tom Cruise hanging on to that plane. So I've missed a couple of of Mission Impossible uh, movies, and I'm currently catching up um, on, on streaming. So I've, I've been watching... Um, two out of three out of the three movies that are already online. So I watched uh, Ghost Protocol, which I felt was one of the weakest in the series. It's a very um, s- weird story. I think it starts in, in Russia and then it moves to uh, Abu Dhabi, I think. And then he climbs that big skyscraper. But it's every time such a... I, a suspension of disbelief like there's no way that is possible or how convenient this and how convenient that and and it's so it's almost like a like a a parody of itself and i think they i felt they went overboard in in that movie and so i i kind of disconnected i didn't like it what i totally forgot by the way was was that uh jeremy renner was in that movie of course hawkeye who later on you know, rose to fame with 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 the Hawkeye series for Marvel, but he is he is a, 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 an integral part of the Mission Impossible group. I think he was introduced in that movie Ghost Protocol, and then he just remained for the rest of the ride. Um, I'm currently watching Rogue Nation. I watched half of the movie. That one is a lot better than uh, Ghost Protocol, and then I still have to see Fallout, which, according to many fans of the series, is the best so far. I. I I don't know about the current movie in theaters. Some of you have already seen it, and uh, it's it's part one. It's so they actually did two parts. I guess they just filmed it uh, probably at, at the same time to save costs, but they will release it separately. Um, so that's a smart way to to save some money, and uh, and apparently it's also very very good. I, I always wonder how long Tom Cruise is going to do this. He's sixty now. Um, yeah. Well, on the other hand, that's just five years older than I than I am. So, but on the other hand, I am not climbing skyscrapers and jumping off cliffs on motorbikes. So, yeah, I don't know how he does it. <laughs> uh, today also saw the premiere, the world premiere of the trailer for season two of the Wheel of Time series. Uh, that's an adaptation, of course, of the famous books by Robert Jordan. I've read four of them, and so this second season is going to cover. I think book three and four, 
and also part of book two, they kind of mix it around a little bit in the in the adaptation. And uh, the television series, on in, in in many ways, is is different. Sometimes more condensed. They take a lot of creative liberty um, to bring this huge, huge epos to the small screen. But I think they they probably did the right thing with that because the story is so immense. I mean, there are thousands of characters in in these books, so they had to kind of make it a little bit simpler and also sometimes combine certain characters. I think they did a, a pretty good job. You can tell, however, in season one that it lacks the scale of, let's say, Rings of Power, which is also an Amazon Prime production. But Amazon, Amazon really wanted to, um, to, for, the, for the Rings of Power uh, television, I'm calling it movies, but they wanted that series to feel like the original Lord of the Rings movies. And so the scope is much bigger. I think the budget is probably also tenfold of what they can spend on Wheel of Time. But the original story of Wheel of Time is, of course, you know, just as epic as as what Tolkien did with The Lord of the Rings. It's a different type, slightly different genre, but the scale of the world building is very similar to what Tolkien did with Middle-earth. However, the television series, given the constraints of the budget and also given the fact that this was filmed entirely during COVID, at least the first season, I probably... I think that probably also part of second, the second season was filmed under COVID conditions. And so it all feels more kind of like a standard tele fantasy television series. Um, so uh, I'm still looking forward to this second season, especially because it is so different from the books. And having read the first four books, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to rediscovering the story, but then through a different angle. I always like it when, uh, when, when they don't play it safe, following the books to the letter, but there's still something to discover in the adaptation, even for, for people that have read the books multiple times. I haven't seen the trailer yet. I'll probably do a reaction trailer uh, one of these days on, on YouTube. Um, but I also want to move on to a review of this week's episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. You know how much I love 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 strange new worlds it is the best star trek series in decades uh, actually right now it's my favorite star trek series ever even even more than deep space nine i know that that maybe that's sacrilegious to say but deep space nine story-wise is probably much more ambitious than what they do with with strange new worlds but it's it's very dated and it's it's it has a lot of clunker episodes. And so even though I, I enjoy watching it, but there are many episodes where I'm like, yeah, it's really um, kind of classic Star Trek TV. It feels cheap. It feels simple. And the writing is great. Ronald D. Moore was, was involved, especially in the later season. So don't get me wrong there. But, but quality-wise, you know, the acting, the whole execution... Um, of Strange New Worlds is beyond anything I've seen in in the Star Trek universe. And what I love most is that the chemistry of the crew members is is near perfect. I mean, I can't wish for a better family vibe uh, than the, what they do with this crew of the Enterprise. And so this past week, they 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 also kind of switch up the genre. Some some episodes will feel almost like horror. 
and some of them are like classic time travel story or a romance. And this week, it was comedy. It was golden comedy. I've never laughed this much during any Star Trek episode ever. Uh, it's it's uh, this episode tells the story. I won't spoil it, but uh, to give you an idea, uh, Spock of course, is not just pure Vulcan. He behaves very much like a Vulcan because he learned how to control his emotions, but his mom is human. And so there's always this, this duality in him. And there is his human side that he tries to repress because he really wants to be a Vulcan, but it's very hard. So in a similar way, his aspiration to be a Vulcan is, is uh, similar to what you see in, in Data later on, who, who, who really wants to be a human, but still is constantly kind of fighting the, the android in himself. And, and it's just really not, not grasping what it means to be fully human. Here, Spock is faced with the same struggle. He is Vulcan, but he also is human. And how do you reconcile these two parts of your identity? And I think that's why we relate so much to him. Well, in this particular episode, um, because of something that happens, for a, for a certain time, Spock becomes fully human, including his ears. You know, no more pointy ears. He just has round ears. His hair is different, and his eyebrows are human eyebrows. And, and, and it comes at the worst time possible because he is supposed to have an encounter with a family of his fiance, and that encounter is, is crucial in the whole process if he messes it up, if he doesn't follow all the minutiae of the, of the Vulcan liturgy, then he's going to be cast out. And so at, right in that moment, he is unable to channel his inner Vulcan because it's gone, it's eradicated. So you'll have to watch the episode to see how, how, how come and, and how it all resolves itself. But the writing was so incredibly well done and the acting was super funny. Um, it had heart. It, it, I also really loved Pike, Captain Pike's role in this. That, like he's constantly in the background, like raising an eyebrow. He's like, uh-oh. And he's trying to help. But it's like half of the, of the comedy comes from his how he reacts to the to the situation that Spock finds himself in. It, it was maybe my favorite episode so far. It's so, oh my gosh, I, I love this series. Um, all right, th that's enough for starters. Let's talk about something that um, is also in the realm of sci-fi. And it, for me, is the biggest news that just broke this day, the day that I'm recording this episode. And it came from none other than Mike Straczynski himself. Mike Str Michael Straczynski, of course, the writer and creator of Babylon 5 and also of many other uh, famous series. He's also been a writer for uh, a number of comic book series, both in the Marvel and in the DC universe. Um, I, it's a writer that I admire so much. I've, I've read his autobiography, Becoming Superman, which is insanely good um and his his writing is unparalleled i i think he's my favorite science fiction writer and babylon 5 is his most famous series um i discovered it because i started watching deep space nine and then some of you told me well did you know that the story of deep space nine is inspired by what 
what Babylon 5 did. And if you watch the two series uh, together, which I am still doing because I haven't finished watching Babylon 5, nor have I finished watching Deep Space Nine, the further you, you go, the more you see the, the similarities. Um, it's almost as if, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine was, was copying all the, the, the big reveals in, in, uh, in Babylon 5. However, Star Trek is Star Trek, Babylon 5 is Babylon 5. What Straczynski did was to create a very coherent um, science fiction world, and what made that series so incredibly uh, special and unique was that he conceived of the entire story bef before they even started casting. He knew exactly what would happen. And so um, it's it's a, an epic story that, that is uh, told over multiple seasons. And every season has a lot of episodes. This was still in the time that a season wouldn't be six or eight episodes like most series we watch on streaming media nowadays. No, they would have like 24 episodes. So it's a ton of work to get through that story. Um, but because he did all the planning beforehand, and he even reveals in his audio commentaries that not only did he have the story the way it was ultimately filmed, but he also had B stories like... Um, contingency stories if for whatever reason an actor wouldn't be able to continue um, there are always things that happen uh, when you're when you're embarking on a big multi-year project like that that can, can go, go wrong but he had planned for everything so it wouldn't be a problem if if and this actually happened with the, the original captain of uh, the actor who played the original captain or or what is it it's not a president, but the, the guy in charge of the Babylon 5 uh, diplomatic station, that actor got all sorts of health problems. And so he had to bow out. They brought him back, I think, for the final few episodes. But he had to be replaced by, by someone new. But that was all taken care of. That, that He had that. That option was open. Nobody was irreplaceable. And so um, it makes for um, un just so unique, unique storytelling. What, what kind of works uh, to the detriment of the longevity of Babylon 5 is the fact that this was created kind of on the, the tipping point between um, old-fashioned uh, special effects work and digital special effects work. Nowadays, of course, everything is digital, and there is there's even now uh, more of a, like a return to practical. A lot of current movies and even TV shows are trying to do more in camera because our our minds are so good at discerning whether something is real or whether something is computer generated. And so, for instance, in Andor, almost everything you see is practical. There are only a few establishing shots that may have used some computer work, but but most of what you see is is practical. But it, it, when when Babylon Five was uh, was entering production, they started to experiment with rendering what normally would be very expensive special effects shots, especially with model work, you know, spaceships, and um, in order to save costs and to make it even possible to visualize some of the stuff in the scripts, they used computers. Um, in fact, a lot of the special effects were rendered on, uh, back then, what was was considered to be um, uh, just a consumer type of computer. I think they used the Amiga 
to uh, to render a lot of those graphics. They also um, rendered them for the four by three ratio, which at the time was the norm. There were no widescreen TVs. It's hard to believe, but. The, like like um, the next generation in Star Wars, everything was filmed four uh, four by three, and so the special effects were only rendered in four by three, and they were only rendered for television quality. This is also because those computers were super slow, and in order to be able to render things in time, they were all these special effects were rendered at a very low resolution, which looked fine at the televisions at the time but nowadays if you even if you try to scale them up it, they look so fake and so you know the colors are garish and it's it's so jarring compared to the rest of the footage because the rest of the show was filmed still on celluloid this was before the advent of digital cameras and so you have this weird combination of really pristine looking uh, kind of old fashioned film based footage and these very primitive, totally outdated special effects. This is one of the reasons that um, that the, the series Babylon 5 was never released on Blu-ray. Because the masters, of course, of the film stuff, they, they could be re-rendered, and I think they've been re-scanned in high resolution, but they couldn't do anything with those special effects. In fact, they actually filmed... Babylon 5 in 16 by 9 in widescreen. And uh, just like they did with the early seasons of the X-Files, which have been re-released in widescreen because they were filmed originally in widescreen. This is also the case for Babylon 5. But because all the special effects only exist in very low resolution 4 by 3 format, they the only way in which you could do a widescreen, high-definition release of Babylon 5 would be if you would totally redo all the special effects. So we're talking about, what is it, 9, 10 seasons? 24, seasons, uh, 24 episodes per season? Something like that? The, the costs would be astronomical. And, and, and especially for an old series, this series is 20 years old, there's just no market for that. And unless in the future maybe with AI-assisted uh, 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 re-rendering or, like, recreation, which I can totally see happening one day, that you can just tell a computer, hey, give me a shot like this, but then totally redo it in, in, in high-resolution. High I think we're, we're getting there, but it's, that technology is, of course, still in its infancy right now. But until that moment, it is impossible to do anything more than upscaling the special effects that we have right now and then just issuing this in in the four by three format and so for a very long time I, act, I remember even asking this directly on social media to michael straczynski because he's very active on social media especially on facebook and he's also very responsive he always talks with his fans which to me is like oh my gosh i got a reply from straczynski himself i was so over the moon and i asked him you know do you, do you think we'll ever see this on blu-ray and he and at the time this is a couple of years ago he said no no and, and he explained the whole situation it's like we just don't have the the quality is not there in the source material and if you would upscale everything to to blu-ray quality the it, the disconnect between the 
that what was filmed with real film and what was rendered on on these primitive computers would be too big. So I don't think we're ever going to see this. And lo and behold, today it was announced that we will get to see a Blu-ray release. The entire series, the complete series, is going to have a Blu-ray release in December. Actually, on December the 5th, which is the eve of the Feast of St. Nicholas. And in the Netherlands, we ask presents for to St. Nicholas. So I know what's going to be on my list. I'm going to be so nice and not naughty at all because really, I'm so curious. And this render or this version of Babylon 5 will be uh, based on an, an like an HD upscale that they did for streaming platforms um, a few years ago. And according to, I've never seen... Uh, that particular version because it's not available on streaming platforms here in Europe but apparently it's not too shabby yes the special effects look a little bit clunky Uh, they have been upscaled but all in all it does work and they also did some slight work on color correction and contrast and that sort of stuff so there is definitely some work has been done to make this acceptable in HD. And it's that version that they're now going to release on Blu-ray. Of course, the bitrate of Blu-ray discs is way higher than you would get on a streaming platform. So uh, Straczynski himself said uh, that probably this is the best version that we've ever seen. He is not involved in all this, by the way. He's, he created the series. He was there for every episode. And yet this is something that takes place completely, you know, behind him behind his back to a certain extent there they haven't been in in, and this is what's wrong i think with today's television industry it's these big companies they they treat their their digital property or their uh, what is it intellectual property as a commodity as as a business and they don't care that much about the creators this is also the the core i think of the problem um of uh, that led to the writer's strike and the actor's strike right now. It's because all these creative people that work so hard to, to make these stories and to bring them to us as an audience, after they've done the job, they're discarded. It's almost like, you know, it's <laughs> maybe it's the wrong metaphor, but you, you have these these donor fathers, you know, that they've, they, they will like certain people want to have children and they will just rent a dad to a certain extent and then after the 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 man has done his part of the of the equation he's no longer necessary and he's not supposed to be a father and <laughs> that is kind of what we see happening right now when what I told you last week, when they 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 want to actually be able to scan people's faces and then use their likeness for eternity without any giving any residuals to the original actor, they want to be able to use artificial intelligence to recreate voices and later on even performances of actors even after they died, and nor the actors themselves nor their family uh, w- would have any control over that. I know that they actually already do this. Remember when we heard the voice of Darth Vader in the Obi-Wan Kenobi television series? That famous voice by James Earl Jones was completely computer-generated. James Earl Jones did no work for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Maybe he got paid, but I remember reading somewhere that he actually waived his rights. He sold his voice, or at least the likeness of his voice, 
to to Disney for eternity. So even if James Earl Jones is no longer there, they can just recreate his voice. They did the same thing with Mark Hamill in his appearance in the Book of Boba Fett. You hear a younger version of Mark Hamill. They used audio recordings of, of Mark Hamill reading audio books to generate new lines because, of course, Mark Hamill is still around, but his voice doesn't sound like, you know, the young Luke Skywalker that we see portrayed in the Book of Boba Fett. And so... This is that something tells me that that, that that this is a slippery slope. And so just the fact that such a famous, such a, an epic science fiction series is now re-released on Blu-ray and its creator has to learn about it from the media is is beyond me. I mean I, he would probably volunteer to to collaborate with that and oversee it. And I think it would actually even enhance the status of a re-release like that. Think of of the Schneider cut of the um, uh, of the of the Justice League. The the fact that that he got the opportunity to do a recut of his movie and he made it totally different, gave it his own stamp. For many people, that was a reason to go and buy that movie and to watch it. So I don't know why. All these big companies don't want that. Maybe it's because they don't want to pay residuals or extra money. They just want to squeeze out every last drop. But, for instance, uh, Mike Straczynski said there are not going to be any audio commentaries. He recorded audio commentaries for so many episodes, and he continues to do that on his Patreon, by the way. Um, but they didn't. They didn't integrate that because because money, because it would be too complicated. And so we we we, we will get. The series on Blu-ray, and it will be much better than what we currently have on on DVD. But it still won't be the ultimate release. And and kind of in an ideal world, I'm thinking, doesn't this series merit an ultimate release? Shouldn't these studios just invest, maybe not to make their money back, but just for the sake of art? This is also what I what I hope will happen one day, if 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 ever. Disney would re-release the original version of this of the original trilogy of Star Wars. I feel that that history needs an official release of what the movie actually looked like when it was first released, not all these fixed versions later on. Of course, they may be for George Lucas the definitive version, but it isn't it insane that you can never see what Star Wars looked like when I first watched it in in movie theaters? This is happening everywhere uh, i saw a similar discussion about old video games that a lot of the video games that i grew up with you cannot play them anymore unless you play them kind of through emulators which is kind of in a gray area because sometimes the the sometimes these games are abandoned and so i don't think morally there's anything wrong about playing them in a, in an emulator but sometimes these these games still are the the property of the big companies like Nintendo, a lot of the old games on Nintendo, um, are now inaccessible. And it's up to Nintendo to re-release them and make some money on them, but sometimes it will never happen. And so, um, yeah, I think over time there's going to be a discussion about all this, and maybe this will lead to a whole different industry in the future. I can I can see a world where now, especially now that you can create a lot of these special effects and you can you can use extremely 
um, professional cameras for for um, amateur prices. Um, I can see a future where people will actually want to hold on to their intellectual property in, instead of selling out to these big companies. And I can I can see a future where individual creators will be will will be able to gather so much support and and maybe just do fundraising themselves so that they can create stories where the big companies wouldn't see any opportunity to make money and and maybe there will be a future where individual creators will be able to actually pay actors what they deserve and pay writers what they deserve instead of you know this whole entire industry being in the grips of all these money-making factories that don't care, don't really care for the creators. I don't know. It's it's a radical <laughs> change of, of the world in which we now live. But look at the creator industry that has, has emerged with the advent of podcasting and, and YouTube and how you can now watch stuff on YouTube that actually looks better and has better storytelling than what you would see on, on regular... TV, things are changing. And I don't think that you can put the spirit back into the bottle. <laughs> Catholics rock! It's time for a visit to the Peculiar Bunch. This is the place where you can ask anything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And uh, today I want to react to something I read uh, about a Protestant pastor who wrote a book about the Virgin Mary. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. Now, I'm not telling you anything shocking if I say that the, the Virgin Mary is extremely important in the Catholic tradition and has always been ever since the beginning, even before the split between the Orthodox Church and the, the Catholic Church and uh, long before the Protestant Reform, the Virgin Mary has been a central figure in the iconography of the Church, so the depictions of the Mother of God, um, in, in the early doctrine of the church, the early theology that started to uh, to emerge, and also in the devotional life of the Catholic Church. Virgin Mary, being the mother of Christ, the Redeemer, at one point was uh, designated to be the mother of God because, of course, her son, Jesus, is not only human, but is also fully God. And so, technically, you could say she since she is the mother of Jesus, who is both God and both human, she is the mother of God. Now, uh, that that theology resulted in also uh, a, a devotion, so in, in to ritual practices in the Catholic Church and, and forms of prayer, in which the Virgin Mary is seen as someone who is so close to her son that she is maybe your best friend in heaven uh, and uh, I've always explained the Catholic view on the on, on why we pray to to Mary as the mother of God that this is what we do in in here on earth as well if I am going through some tough times I may ask other people to pray for me and and people ask me to pray for them and so the only difference 
with uh, our prayers to Mary or to the other saints is that they are in heaven, but we believe that they are in heaven, in the case of, of the Virgin Mary, body and soul, in the case of the saints uh, in the soul, awaiting still the resurrection of the flesh. But they are real. They are, they are still alive, in, but they don't live here on earth. And so our prayers to the saints is not to replace our prayers to God or um, or, or the, the prayers uh, to Jesus, uh, nor are the saints or the Virgin Mary competing with God. Let, let, let's see what works better if I ask Jesus or maybe I ask the mother uh, of, of, of Jesus. No, you have to see this in, in this kind of uh, family type of vision of what the church is. The church is not just an organization. It is a family of brothers and sisters, some of which live here on earth and some of which live are already in heaven, and we're st- but we're still connected to them. This is what in Catholic theology we call the communion of the saints. This is also part of our creed. We believe in the communion of the saints. It means this invisible bond between the church here on earth and church in heaven. And so we can help one another, and th- this is why the Virgin Mary was always venerated in the Catholic Church as um, someone who also is given to us as a mother to pray for us, just as she prayed in her existence here on earth for the mission of her son and for the people around her. So um, there is this Protestant pastor and theologian here in the Netherlands who wrote a book about the figure of Mary because for Protestants, the, the this... This role of the Virgin Mary is very problematic, and this maybe has to do also with the uh, kind of the the um, the excesses when it comes to in, in this Marian devotion. I don't think it is the, the Protestant Reform was anti Virgin Mary per se. In fact, we know that Luther had a very strong devotion to the Virgin Mary, even though you know the Protestant reform started with him. So uh, the, the Virgin Mary, at, at least at first, in the beginning of this Protestant revolution, was still, um, at least from a theological point of view, considered to be a, a, a very important saint. Um, but but th- there were also tendencies in the Catholic practice and in, in, the, in the devotion, the dev- devotional side, which is not always fully... Um, aware of all the theological implications of certain forms of devotion, uh, went a little bit far, where it almost seemed as if the Virgin Mary was more important than Jesus. And so, over time in the Protestant world, there was a a growing reluctance to award the Virgin Mary this this important place uh, that Catholics continue to, uh, to give her. And so, it took until... I think just two years ago, uh, for a Protestant theologian to write this book about why Protestants should have um, should attribute a, a, a greater place to the role of the Virgin Mary, not just in the Bible but also in the ritual life of the Church. And of course, as you can imagine, this this um, encountered a lot of resistance among his peers and fellow Protestants, and yet he's uh, also convinced a lot of his readers um, that that uh, there is actually a lot of theological validity for, to, to restore the important role of the Virgin Mary in faith that she has always had, even in you know the early centuries of the Church. Um, so the role of the Virgin Mary and the theology of the Virgin Mary um, is something that 
Protestants and Orthodox uh, Christians and, and Catholic Christians all have in common. It's our common heritage. But it was just kind of set aside by uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters. And, and, and then gradually they're rediscovering this. So I read this interview because he's, he's uh, going to do uh, a lecture here in the parish um, in September, I think. Uh, and so for that, on that occasion, I, I read an interview with, with the author and he said, uh, he was asked, so are there any limits to what you, what you are comfortable with, with when it comes to this veneration of the Virgin Mary? And then he said, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I would never want to carry around a statue of the Virgin Mary in procession. I feel that that is, is way too close to, um, uh, you know that, that you really run the risk of of of, of turning her, her into a deity, um, and he said uh, also said I, I will never light a candle to to pray to the Virgin Mary. That feels to me that feels like superstition, and and I think when I'm reading that it's like, oh come on, you're a theologian. Look at this objectively. Is this really superstitious? Uh, if you look at w what does this mean, we, we have so many saints and, and, and fathers of the church writing about this, these practices. When Catholics light a candle when they pray, it is not a sacrifice to enforce something. It's, it's not um, a magical ritual um, that, that automatically grants prayers. They're, Catholics don't believe that. The prayer is a symbolic expression of our prayer. So it's a ritualized form of, in, in which, we, just like we use words to express our prayer, we also use gestures. We, when we pray, we, we may fold our hands or uh, we may uh, stretch out our hands to heaven. These are symbolic gestures. It's not a magic gesture. It's not superstition. It's just an expression of this, of, of the movement of our soul. And so is lighting a candle. The candle itself, you light, you put a light in the darkness, which, which is, of course, reminds us that we are asking for light, a guiding light in our life. It's not the candle that is that guiding light. No, it, it reminds us of the light that, that Christ is. We light a candle because the candle will continue to burn even after we've we've uh, left the church or the chapel where we lit that candle. And so it's an expression of our will to be constantly in prayer for for this desire, this 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 prayer that we have to <clears throat> have longevity that it doesn't only depends on our effort, but that we can confide in the fact that if we if we address our prayers to heaven, um, the saints and Jesus will take care of that prayer and will make sure that, that it's not forgotten. This is why those candles burn. And if I, see, if I enter the church on Sunday morning and I see all these candles in front of the Virgin Mary, I don't think like, oh my gosh, all these superstitious people, why don't they just go pray straight to God? No, I see expressions of faith and and uh, surrender, and I see like the, almost like traces of prayer. It's I think it's a beautiful symbol, and I don't see why that would be superstitious or why that wouldn't work for for Protestants. Then again, I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Catholic priest, but yeah. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night, the packet, the extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? 
I read a fun book. It's nothing special, but still a fun read. It's written by Mike Chen, and it's called We Could Be Heroes. And when I read the review on, I think I saw it in my in my feed on Goodreads. That's oftentimes how I discover new books. I, I see someone else who read the book, and then I was like, oh, I may want to check that out. Um, this book is about two people, a man and a woman, and they discover that they actually have superpowers. But the only caveat is they don't remember anything of who they were before they discovered these superpowers. So I, I think that's a, a very intriguing premise. So the first, the first uh, superhero that we encounter is this man, and he is robbing a bank. His superpower is not super strength or laser vision or whatever. No, his, his superpower is that he can remove memories from people's heads. So he can actually rob a bank and then he can take the memory of that traumatic event for the people there, take it out of their heads and walk away and nobody would follow him. The only problem is, of course, every bank has cameras, security cameras, and he can do nothing against that. So ultimately, um, he, he becomes known as this very mysterious bank robber that always walks into a bank, robs it, and leaves and nobody does anything. And so there's this mystery around who is he? Who is he? And he gives himself a persona of a superhero in a sense that he changes his voice and his accent and he he threatens that he can he can change people's heads and mess around with their memories and if they don't do what, what he says he can even take away very precious memories of, you know, the birth of your child or the wedding of your daughter. And and at one point, one of those bank robberies, something goes wrong. And then you discover that, wait a minute, the, the behind this so-called superhero, there is actually a very vulnerable person. And then there's this other woman who comes across this man, and she too has superpowers, but she has more classic superpowers. So she's able to run super fast, like the Flash. She is incredibly strong, um, but it's like Wolverine. She feels the pain, but she heals immediately. So she's able to break through walls. It hurts, but there are no lasting consequences for her. So these two people, um, by accident, meet each other. They don't know about their superpower or their secret superpower, superhero identity. But ultimately, they are, they're working together. They have, they'll have to work together and, and try to unravel who they were before they got superpowers and why. And so I love the first part of the book. Like first half of the book is really original and, and fun to read. And I could totally picture it as if I was watching a movie. And then the second half, it starts to drag on a little bit. Um, the, the, the idea kind of outstays its welcome. And you're, you're, I was waiting for this big reveal. Like this, I was hoping that this story would go beyond just being... A superhero story and the beginning of the book felt very much like oh there's going to be so much depth and personal development and and unfortunately the second half of the book doesn't pay pay off what it seems to set up and it turns into i'm mean, still an enjoyable story it's got a good villain it's got a good resolution there are some lessons learned but it's all very run-of-the-mill and I at the end is like okay yeah yeah okay I I like at ha at the halfway point of the book I wanted to give it five stars out of five because I I was so enjoying the original premise of the book 
And then it, after reading it, it was like, yeah, four, maybe three and a half out of five. It's just a missed opportunity. I, I expected the book to be better. But if you read it without too many expectations, I still think you're going to have a great time. So it's called We Could Be Heroes, written by Mike Chen. Then I read a book about someone who actually defines himself almost as a superhero, but in reality, Rich Roll apparently also has a podcast. He's quite known on social media. I'd never heard of him. And he wrote a book, Finding Ultra. And it's a story of its of his life where, uh, at least when he was 40, he lived a very unhealthy life as a couch potato. He, was, uh, he had a drinking problem, um, so he needed to go to rehab. And he happened to be married to this extremely... Um, intense vegan wife who uh, like the, literally the, the fridge would be separated into half junk food, half celery sticks. And, uh, and then he has this re- realization when he's 40 years old after I think walking up the stairs to see his daughter that if I continue like this, I'm not going to be at her wedding And that flips a switch in his mind. He goes to talk with his wife and he says, whatever you do, I want to do it. And so she puts him on this, yeah, I don't know what to say about it. The the nutritional advice in this book is wonky, to say the least. And a lot of it is outdated. Um, But I can also see that it's better than than the lifestyle that he had. But she puts him on this cleansing diet. And, of course, a lot of that is hogwash. And uh, there's a lot of science that debunks all this stuff. But anyway, he he does it. And he goes goes for it, like, full energy. Um, And then later on in the book... You discover that actually, as a as a young boy, as a teenager, he was a he was a, a swimmer and he was an athlete. And it's only when he you know between the age of thirty and forty that he started to uh, lose his edge and and ultimately embark on a very dangerous lifestyle. But he he kind of reconnects with that fervor that he had in his younger years, and he starts working relentlessly on becoming healthy, uh, becoming stronger, and to challenge himself uh, more and more. So he starts to run a marathon. He goes and climbs mountains. He is, at one point, he is running ultra marathons. He's going to, he's doing Ironman, not just one Ironman, but he does like three in a row and stuff like that. It's insane. Uh, When I read it, when I was reading the book, I was thinking, you know what? There's actually a lot of similarity between the mindset that he had as an alcohol addict and the mindset that he now has as an athletic addict, he is addicted to these, these ultra uh, experiences. Instead of, and it's, of course, better than alcohol, but it's still, uh, I felt that there was something missing in this book. Like there is this, this hunt for, for, for these, these extreme experiences which, of course, we know chemically in your brain releases dopamine and all sorts of, you know, does all sorts of stuff to make you feel great. But if you go overboard and you don't know your limitations, ultra sports can also be extremely damaging to your health. This is a hard lesson that I, that I had to learn myself, and I talked about it earlier on in the show, and I said, you know, I overtrained. 
this is why I cannot walk that walk of the world. I overtrained. I, I, I really was gung-ho that I wanted to run this sub three and a half hour marathon later this year or next year. And so I, I, I was training four times a week. I was just, and every day I was going on at least an hour long walk and it was all with my feet. I didn't switch. If I had done this in a smarter way, I would have alternated between walking, running, but also biking. I'm still, this is still kind of on my on my wish list. I want to get a racing bike. I do have a, a good, like, general bike, but it's a, it's a touring bike. I want to get a, a genuine racing bike, especially now that I've seen that too much um, training the, the same muscles and always relying on my feet is actually causing damage. And, and then... I, I don't reach my goals. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm sabotaging myself. So I want to mix it up a little bit more. I also am considering getting some, like a trainer or something and start to do some more like weightlifting and stuff just to be able to mix it up and work on my general health and not just on my running speed. And ultimately, if I do this well, I may actually still run that very fast marathon but not if I continue to do just focus on, on running and, and walking. It is uh, already has caused more damage than I, uh, than I expected. So this is what was totally missing in this book. Also, the other thing that, uh, that annoyed me was that, especially in the later part of the book, he all of a sudden starts to tout this, this vegan regime. And it's so outdated. Everything that he says, I say, I'm listening to that. And I was like, man, I used to think this and I used to, to practice this three years ago when I was following the videos of this this Dr. Berg uh, and at the time I was like oh I, I need to be vegan I, I need to be in constant ketosis and now mostly thanks to TikTok I've come across a number of, of you know real doctors and you know uh, uh, scientists and and they uh, nutritionists and they debunk a lot of that stuff that I just took for granted because the guy has a white coat so it has to be true right I've become a little bit more skeptical and uh, m much better informed I'm not saying that that there are no benefits to a vegan lifestyle in fact I lived uh, as a vegan for more than a year I ran two marathons as a vegan um, but it, <laughs> It's not, it's not the only road to health. And so um, that is one of the reasons that I felt that the book was uh, going a little bit overboard and um, should be taken with a grain of salt, even though too much salt is also bad for your health. Speaking of uh, healthy eating, I, I cooked something really healthy and I've been eating it for two days now. But it was more out of necessity than because I really wanted to eat this. But um, I had uh, uh, gotten a bag full of, um, of, of veggies. Now, nowadays, the little, they used to be part of this too good to go plan, but now they sell leftover vegetables in uh, these paper bags that you can buy. Um, and in the one that I was able to uh, to buy, there was this huge bag, it's like a family bag of endives. Endives are very pop, is a very popular type of vegetable in the Netherlands. We, like the traditional way of eating it is in, this, in the wintertime, 
And the, so the endives are from the uh, from kind of more like a lettuce type of family. So it's different from kale, for instance, or broccoli. Um, so the way that we prepare this traditionally in the Netherlands is we make mashed potatoes, and then we add at the final stage we add raw endives and we mix it into the mashed potatoes, and we would also add. Um, you know, bacon or something like that. And that's it. Um, and eat it with gravy. It's a very much, I always associate it with winter. And that was the only recipe that I knew. So I got this huge family bag of andives. And the first thing I'm thinking is, I don't want to eat andives mash. It's too, it's summertime. I, ugh, there, there's got to be something else. And the, pr- the problem with andives is they they have a bit of a bitter taste if you cook them. And so the, if you mash them with potatoes, that kind of neutralizes that bitter aftertaste. But I didn't see myself eating this as a salad only because then it, the, the bitter taste of andives becomes very prominent. And so I, I, was, I was looking for Asian recipes and I've already turned around my entire view of, of spinach because now I make Korean spinach and it's so good. I love it. I used to hate spinach. Because I only knew the traditional recipes. And now I, ah, I love Korean spinach. And so I found this, this recipe very simple. So you, you need these, um, these andives. Um, I had like, I don't know, it was like 700, 800 grams, so a lot of it. You, you uh, use a um, half a, um, what do you call it? Like a red pepper, like the spicy ones. Uh, you you cut that into tiny pieces. Um, you you dice up a red onion, um, uh, maybe a clove of garlic. Also dice it up very small, or even crush it. And then this was this was interesting. Um, a handful of of tiny tomatoes, like these small tomatoes that I often use in the in the. It's like I'm not sure we call them cherry tomatoes in the Netherlands. Um, and I cut th- those in halves. You need, need a bit of uh, cumin powder. You can also use coriander or coriander power, uh, powder. I, I don't like coriander because I'm genetically uh, dispositioned. To me, coriander tastes like soap. Half of, the, half of mankind uh, has that genetic defect. Um, and th- for the rest of the world, coriander is, is fantastic. So I, I don't use coriander. Uh, you need some soy sauce olive oil and pepper and salt. So the way you prepare this is you um, you put some olive oil, you add the diced uh, red onion, the, the, the pepper, the, the garlic, and the t- tomatoes and the cumin powder, um, and you just um, fry that in the pan. Um, and because you use the olive oil, it, the, the, especially the cumin powder and uh, the onion and the garlic start to release their flavor and it's very it smells so good uh then you add uh two spoons of uh soy sauce and immediately then afterwards you put in the andives um and and you stir it or you um you walk it until um, it starts to reduce a little bit. You don't want to overcook the andes because then it becomes all mushy and watery. Uh, so it still needs to have a little bit of a, of a bite. So only, you know, walk it for, for two minutes max. Um, and then you add some more soy sauce, uh, pepper and salt. Uh, I also added um, some onion powder. And you can basically add more, more uh, uh, herbs 
to uh, to enhance the taste. And I ate that in combination with white rice, or not white rice, I used brown rice this time. And it was delicious. It was so good and so different and super healthy because Andy's green leafy vegetables are incredibly nutritious. They have got plenty of vitamins and iron and whatnot. So I'm no longer afraid of Andy's. I actually, next time I'm going to enjoy this. Now, here's a little bit of homework. Next week, I want to talk about the weirdest concoction that I've ever come across on, on the internet. But apparently this is a thing and I've never heard of it. And I wonder if this is just a crazy recipe or if, or, or if this is something that y- you have actually tried out. It's called espresso tonic. I'm not making this up. Espresso tonic. Ice cubes, tonic, and then you pour a black espresso or a double espresso into that concoction and you drink it cold. Really? I, I don't want to try it without knowing that I'm going to survive this. So please fill me in if you have any knowledge about this witchcraft and wizardry. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. So earlier in this episode, when we talked about Babylon 5 and uh, the uh, remaster for Blu-ray, I also mentioned upscaling. And this is something that uh, especially modern TVs are very good at. So normally, if you would take a low-resolution image and you just blow it up, it would get very pixelated. This is why a lot of those retro games have these, these very pixelated graphics. It's because the, the, the games when I was young were made for very low-resolution televisions. Um, so in order to prevent the jaggies and the pixelated look, um, there are various ways in which you can kind of use the information around the pixels to come up with an, uh, something that, that looks slightly better than just upscaling things. And uh, nowadays with AI, um, the upscaling uh, abilities of modern computers have gone even further than that there are now video games that you can play on very modest hardware for instance i've got the hogwarts legacy game and i'm playing it on a on a like six-year-old graphics card but the game has a ia assistant technology that uses the chip inside the the graphics card to upscale it intelligently and so even though you're actually the computer only has to work for uh, let's say uh, uh, a 720p type of quality picture the upscaling process is so smart that it actually generates new pixels and gives a sharpness that you could never uh, reach if you were only blowing up the picture itself so that this is this is um, upscaling and this technology is very common in modern televisions especially because a lot of the uh, source material that we were watching is not 4K. A lot of our televisions, like the big screen televisions are all 4K, but a lot of the streaming platforms like Netflix, they only serve you 1080p. Unless you pay a lot of extra money and then you can see 4K. So televisions do a pretty good job in upscaling old material and make it acceptable. This is why I was thinking of changing my Netflix subscription. And as, as I explained in previous episodes of The Break, I used to have a subscription through Apple, 
Um, and I just had the standard Netflix subscription, which is 1080p. I, I've never felt that it wasn't sharp enough for my big 4K TV, so I was totally happy with that. But Netflix had been raising the, the, the monthly price for that, and it's now, I think, 12 bucks. It used to be 9.99. And if I look at the surrounding countries, um, it's much more expensive. I think it's because in the Netherlands there's a lot of competition, um, and so they have to keep the prices low. But in other countries, especially in the United States, it's insane how much you pay for a regular 1080p uh, Netflix subscription. And so I, I'd heard that uh, Netflix had, had nixed the, um, uh, the basic subscription tier where you pay only $7.99 or $6.99 even, uh, Canadian dollars or, or US dollars, I'm not sure. And you would get like a 720p uh, image. So that's basically a little bit sharper, slightly better than DVD quality, but almost the same. So definitely not the Blu-ray type of stuff that we're used to. But I was thinking, if my TV is so good at, at, at resizing, at, at rescaling, um, maybe, maybe it works. Maybe it's good enough. I just don't know because I've got this very big... TV, so uh, the proof is going to be in the pudding. I just have to try it out. So I, I canceled my Apple subscription, and I um, and just yesterday evening, I subscribed to the basic plan, which is only seven ninety nine, um, and I started watching a movie and television series on my TV, on my four K TV, and at first I thought, oh, I made a mistake. Um, this is still 1080p. This this is absolutely, this is 1080p. I couldn't believe that, that I was watching a 720p image. And then I watched another movie. And then there was only, I was watching this, uh, the Passengers sci-fi movie, which is, I still love that movie. Um, and um, Chris Pratt is playing a guy who wakes up too early on a big interstellar spaceship and he's all alone. And the opening shot shows that spaceship through space, and, it, and, and you see it first of all in the distance, and that is when I started to, to notice some artifacts. So I, I saw that that actually the, 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 the image wasn't entirely smooth, and, and the, the closer this, the, the ship came, the more it, it was totally fine, but it wasn't that, that those early moments with the reveal of the ship that I, I noticed, mm, this is actually a little bit lower quality. And then I walked towards the television, and I could tell, yeah, this is not entirely 1080p. But when I went back to my chair and I watched it from a regular viewing distance, I couldn't tell the difference. For me, it was like 95% the same image as what I was paying 12 bucks a month for. So I, um, I'm, I intend on keeping my basic subscription and Boy, was I right in time, because just today I saw the news that Netflix has now also canceled the basic sub subscription plan in the UK and in the United States, which means they're going to cancel it everywhere. The only affordable subscription that you can get if you don't want to pay 12 or 15 bucks a month for the, the standard subscription is to go with the, the advertisement option. Where, you, where every hour you will see five advertisement breaks. I mean, that's already bad enough on YouTube. It's one of the reasons that I'm considering getting a YouTube premium subscription because I hate those, even if it's very short videos, but man, they are annoying. Now for me, it's a bit hypocritical for me to, to, to comment on that because on YouTube, 
I'm actually my revenue on YouTube comes from these advertisements. So every time you see an ad, please say a prayer for me because it, it, this is helping me pay the rent. But <laughs> I cannot imagine paying for Netflix and then having to watch advertisements. I mean, it's back to the Stone Age with that. So I have right now, I'm, I'm saving four bucks a month, which is like 48 bucks a year. And this is exactly the amount that I pay for my Sky Showtime subscription. So basically, by switching back to the to the basic tier, and they will let me keep it, even though they may not offer the tier in the future, but as long as I don't switch, I will probably be able to watch it for just $7.99 a month. And I get Star Trek for free. Yay! And with that, it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for the privilege of your time. And a special thank you to my wonderful patrons. Um, and I want to welcome a new patron who uh, joined the $2.50 tier monthly and thereby also got access to the to the Discord server. And it's uh, Gerby. I hope I pronounced that correct, correctly. Gerby, welcome to the Patreon community. And of course, I'm still waiting for you if you're not a patron yet. Um, it is a wonderful community, but more importantly... You help me continue my mission to make these programs and to reach out to people that otherwise would never, ever come across a priest in their lives. Um, sharing with them what's really important in life in the language of geeks and Lego and Star Wars. That's why I do what I do. That's my vocation. But I can't do it by myself. I, I can only do it thanks to your support. So thank you so much for your ongoing prayers, your advice, your feedback, your time, and also for your donations. We'll talk soon. Take care and God bless. <laughs>